We want to continue our study in Luke by looking backwards a little bit because we're getting into a new section, a new theme, if you will, that we want to pick up on. But before we do that, I want to take just a few moments to remind us of how Luke is going through his book and giving us the account of Jesus and his life and teaching. As just way back at the very beginning, we know who this book was written to. It's written to those who desire to be friends of God. Theophilus simply means a friend of God. Someone who is interested, certainly, who has some information, but maybe not thorough information about God and about the workings of Jesus Christ. Some would contend that this person is one certain individual, most excellent Theophilus, and certainly that's uh, reasonable. Um, but I don't want to exclude the idea that this is written to those who have not sufficient information about Jesus Christ and about God's working among men through him. And so Luke writes this account out. He writes it in an orderly fashion, wanting to go from his birth to his resurrection, to the introduction of the new birth through his shed blood. As he goes through, he has patterned himself a little differently than some of our other writers. He is giving us uh, some information of Christ's teaching, and then he is exemplifying and demonstrating that information through the life and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the synoptic comparison, that's comparison between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find that there are some sections of Luke that are not included in Matthew and Mark, and that there is sometimes a little bit of a different order between them. But again, this is easily explained between the differences of purpose of the differences of uh, audience that the different writers had. And so we come in, and what we have seen him do is give a teaching of Christ. He has given it in a very abbreviated form, very concise, very direct, and then given examples of that through Christ's uh, parables, through Christ's uh, works, through Christ's life, and through the events that occurred around him. We've just gotten done looking at an extensive uh, development of the idea of what it means to be his disciple. Going back to chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, of what it means to be a true follower of Christ. That this was wrapped up really going back into chapter 9, 1, and taking us through all of chapter 10. Uh, What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It means that we are going to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Prior to that, we looked at the authority that Christ uh, claimed and demonstrated of what it was that uh, and who he was and the power that was there that he possessed by the, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in him and who he was and his purposes. And we find him demonstrating that by his ascendancy over even death itself um, in raising individuals from the dead uh, the ascendancy over John the Baptist. We're going to revisit John the Baptist this morning, actually. Uh, that John the Baptist's disciples were uh, instructed that he was just there to prepare the way for me. And so I'm the one that usurps him in authority and place. And uh, we find him taking also the responsibility and the power to forgive sins. And what a powerful presentation that was of Christ's authority. And then we find him with the parables reinforcing that. And so we have seen this um, pattern that Luke is establishing. So we're going to see a specific teaching 
that he's going to try to exemplify, not only in the events around him, but in his actual work and in his further teaching. We come to Luke chapter 11, and we find yet another teaching that Christ is going to engage in with the disciples. Now, I want to remind you of the setting here a little bit. We, Christ has already determined that it is the time to go to Jerusalem. It is the time for him to head to the place where he will be tried and where he will be executed and will be buried and will rise again. That is on the very near horizon in Christ's ministry. We are probably, well, some would contend just a week or two out from that at this point. And so we've gone through Luke and we have seen Christ's ministry uh, really around the Sea of Galilee in that vicinity. But we know he's traveled many other places, uh, particularly though in the northern part of Israel. And ministering uh, to a wide variety of people uh, from the religious leadership. And we've seen the contrast there to those that were John's disciples who were looking for the Messiah, to some who were kind of irreligious to those that were on the wrong side of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentiles. And so we find that Christ has been ministering widely to soldiers as well as to priests, to uh, fishermen, as well as to tax collectors. From the blue collar to the white collar, from the professional soldier um, to the professional uh, peacekeeper, if you will. And we find that uh, he, his ministry is inclusive We come now on his journey to Jerusalem. And we often focus in on the Passion Week, that last week of Christ's life in Jerusalem. And certainly much that we're going to read and study in the Gospel of Luke is going to occur there. But we're also going to see this travel, this um, ascent to Jerusalem, this pilgrimage, if you will, that he is taking his time with, very deliberately going through these villages, he sent 70 ahead to visit these towns and villages that he knows will be on his path there. He is taking a somewhat of a circuitous route. He's not going the most direct route necessarily to Jerusalem, but this is not unheard of. Um, he is essentially following the Jordan River down, which doesn't take you to Jerusalem. It takes you into Jericho. It takes you into the Dead Sea, or if you keep going south, you have to go up the hill east, Nope, let me take that back. Up the hill west to get to Jerusalem, you would crest over from a desolate area into the Mount of Olives and then heading farther west into Jerusalem. And so we're going to follow him on this travel. But while he's traveling, he is ministering certainly to those around him and his ministry to the disciples is deepening. We are within three weeks at least, maybe only two of his death. He is investing now. His disciples have had over two and a half years to hear his itinerant ministry. And we looked at that, that his message was largely the same everywhere he went because he had a different audience. And he developed really only uh, uh, maybe eight to ten pointed messages that he would have uh, reiterated and spoken maybe a little bit differently in different environments. And so we find him now uh, focusing in a little bit differently on some very specific aspects of what it is entailed in being a disciple of Christ. Now, we just got done talking about what it takes to become a disciple of Christ. What is this? 
Well, is it just enough for me to just pray a sinner's prayer to claim I'm a Christian? Is that sufficient to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? And the answer to that, by Christ's own words, is no. Many will say that, few are. Many will make that claim, few will be able to live up to that claim. And therefore, it is not the making of the claim that makes you a Christian, it is the living the claim that makes you a believer. And he, and that is wrapped up in what we talked about. To be his disciple means to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. That is what is entailed in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So you can make, t- make, you can claim the name Jesus, you can claim the name Christian all day long, but if it's not reflected in those three things in your life, then your claim is false. Regardless of how it is reinforced by others or by your society, Christ himself's His statements are that this is a false claim of yours if you do not back it up with denying yourself, taking up your cross daily and following Him. Living that kind of a life. Well, now that we have studied what it means to be a disciple and to serve Him in that capacity, what does it mean in the life of a disciple? How am I going to live out or flesh out this faith in Him? I have the genuine article. We've decided that now, hopefully, that um, I'm not just making this lip service to Christ or to His name, but I'm going to really live my life in accordance with His truth. Now, how is that going to be fleshed out? How am I going to develop that? What is it like to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? We've talked about what it means to become that and to serve in that capacity. We now want to investigate it even further. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege of having your word before us. We pray that as we look into it this morning, that your spirit might direct, that what is said might be in accordance with your word and led by uh, his work. Lord, we do pray that you might remove distractions from within us and our minds and our hearts that would uh, keep us from focusing our attentions upon your truth. We pray for uh, removal of distractions from our midst. Um, from our environment here, from this very room, that would uh, distract us from your truth. And Lord, we pray that as we do so, that our hearts might be open, might be moldable, that we might be responsive to your word of truth. And we pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is not uncommon for us to find Jesus taking time out to go and pray. In fact, it has been his pattern to go into lonely places and pray. He's taken his disciples in, the, in other times with him uh, with, with limited success. We find him now uh, praying in a certain place. We're not told exactly where. It is likely, again, in a wilderness place somewhere along his journeys. He's taken time aside. He has taken his disciples with us. And the disciples are... A little overwhelmed, I think, by Christ's prayer life. Surprise, surprise. Christ is overwhelmed, or the disciples are overwhelmed by Christ's prayer life. And I want to just insert a little jab here, okay? So prepare yourself. Here's my jab. Christ ministered, taught, moved, lived with absolute dependence upon an active, engaging prayer life. 
We find Him engaged in it before ministry, during ministry, and particularly after ministry. He is enveloped in it because it is the source for successful ministry, for successful living. It is the means by which He gains God's aid and power. This is Jesus Himself we are talking about. And yet I find many Christians convinced that they can do everything that is required of being a follower of Jesus Christ with a puny, pathetic, miserable, weak, often neglected prayer life. That somehow we have greater ability to serve God than Jesus Himself in our own strength, wisdom, and power. We have that level of arrogance about and our, our, that level of confidence in our own abilities. Our own intellectual abilities, our own physical abilities, our own financial abilities, our own relational abilities. We are convinced that we can solve these problems. When Christ Himself placed Himself in this dependent state of prayer to enable Himself to minister to walk, to move, to live, to to deal with temptation. The disciples are overwhelmed by it, and rightly so. Here is one who has demonstrated the power over death, the power over sin, the power over demons, the power over illness, the power over the religious authorities, the power of truth. He has done it over and over and over again. And yet that power is not in essence in himself. It is enveloped, it is discovered, it is derived from his prayer time. And the disciples are beginning to realize it. It's beginning to sink into them. And now after over two years of ministry together, they're finally realizing, even after having gone out and ministered, for a season, even after the twelve were sent out and had great success, even after seventy were sent out and had great success, and they're gathered together here, and 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 things are coming to a culmination in Christ's ministry, they're starting to finally realize that maybe we ought to find out something about this prayer life of Jesus to enable us to truly walk in His ways. And so they ask, finally, ask the question, Lord, teach us to pray. Very concise, direct request, teach us to pray. But yet, it brings a lot of questions to your mind. For certainly, Christ has modeled prayer to them already, repeatedly. These guys aren't the brightest light bulbs on the planet. He has modeled it for them. He has spoken it in front of them. He has shown them where, how often, how long. He has, he has given them every example of prayer. And they come before him and they, and they're still, haven't grasped the necessity of, they haven't grasped 
even the, the, the act of it. And they said, teach us to pray. And it's not that they want to pray like the Pharisees. They want to pray like Christ. There's, a, there's something different in his prayer life than what they have been exposed to in the public praying of the, of the religious leaders of their day. And they want to have access to that kind of praying. And the only one that they can connect with in terms of anyone who prays like you would be anyone close to being comparable was John the Baptist. You know, John taught his disciples to pray differently than the religions of the day. Can you teach us to pray? A prayer that is powerful, a prayer that is effectual, a prayer that matters. And Christ is more than ready to communicate to them exactly how that's going to, how they can have this in their life. But as we go into this, the sad thing is, is that the very kind of praying that Christ is trying to teach against, people use this very passage to come to preach exactly that kind of praying. You see, the disciples had many, many expo- much, or I'm sorry, much exposure, many opportunities to hear the religious leaders of their day pray. They heard it in the synagogues growing up. They heard it at the temple when they had to go into there for their annual sacrifices. They have heard that kind of praying. Empty, powerless, repetitious, vain, worthless. They've heard that praying. They've been exposed to that kind of praying. They're not asking, can you add a new one to the list? They're saying, teach us how to pray like you pray. And like John the Baptist before you prayed with his disciples. There's something different in your praying than what we hear in these religious settings. And shame on the Christian community for taking this very wondrous teaching of Jesus Christ and turning it into this magic formulary prayer. It is not that. It is a teaching on how to pray. It is not a prayer to be repeated over and over and over again. That kind of repetitious praying is empty. It is powerless. It is not the way Jesus prayed. Jesus did not repeatedly say these next three verses over and 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 over for hours after an hour after hour at Garden of Gethsemane. He did not do it that way. He did not expect His disciples to pray in that way. He wanted them to pray with power. And what is powerful praying? And this is what we're going to discover in what is commonly called our Lord's Prayer, which isn't our Lord's Prayer. By the way, it is our Lord's instruction in prayer. This is not what He prayed over and over again. This is a structure, a a pattern that we can um, build our praying in. And it is... A teaching point, not a practice point. 
This is not to define your practice that you pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, and you're, you're usually associated with the Matthew. You're not as familiar, neither am I, with the Luke version of, of this prayer pattern. Um, it's not the praying of so many Our Fathers is going to tap you into the divine power of God. No. It is the reality of the teaching of this prayer. And this we want to investigate this morning. And probably next Sunday morning as well. It begins with an interesting word. And yeah, we're going to start with a word. You should have seen that coming. A relational word. Our Father. Most of our later manuscripts just have Father, but I don't want to neglect the hour. It's there in, in Matthew. And so we find this relational word, actually two words, if you want to have our Father. These two words speak of a relationship. First of all, they speak about a relationship that we have with one another and that we can have together with God. This relationship is of absolute necessity if your prayers are of any value at all. You can pray to your blue in the face, red in the face, green in the face, And if you do not have a relationship with God in this fashion, your prayers are void, are empty, are worthless, are vain. Our Father. Many have talked about this Greek word and said, well, it's this familiar word for Father, and so they think they can insert there our Daddy, our Papa, um, um, you know, Big Daddy in the Sky kind of thing, you know, is the 70s version of Our Father in Heaven, became Big Daddy in the Sky. Um, as, and what they've done is they've neglected the context of the relationship, and that is, hallowed be your name. Yes, there is a familiarity to this word Father that bespeaks of a relationship that we have with Him that is intimate. That He is not some stranger there or some um, banker there or uh, some benevolent uh, entity that we'll visit every now and then, but that we have an intimate relationship with. That we know Him personally. That we describe Him as one in this intimate relationship, as our Father. That He is that one who is, who is the source of what we are and who we are and, and our total dependence is upon Him. That we are truly His children. We are His disciples. We find all our sustenance there, all our purpose there, all our direction there, all our instruction there. All our discipline there. All this is wrapped up in the relationship of a father. And this is what we are called to. And if we do not have this relationship, you can pray even these very words again and again and again, and they will accomplish nothing. Our Father. It bespeaks of the breadth of this opportunity. It's not my father. Do you see that? 
It has not come off with my Father, which are in heaven, but our Father. It speaks about this breath, that we have this opportunity to all have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with, with God as Father, through Christ's shed blood. You see, if Christ here had said, my Father, he could claim a unique relationship with God that only he would have as the only begotten of the Father. But now he's saying, you have a shared opportunity here. That as I have this relationship with God, you may have this relationship with God. That he may be your Father as he is my Father. That we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That we, that we come into that, that relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is of extraordinary intimacy. And hence, later on, if we read in, the, in, in John, Jesus Christ will say, I'm never, not going to refer to you as my servants anymore, but as my friends, as peers. We have a peer opportunity here through Jesus Christ to have a mutual relationship with God the Father. Equal there. And this is the primary requirement of an active, vital, powerful prayer life. Is that it is spoken and engaged in within the context of a personal relationship with God. He is not just something or someone out there, but He is intimate to me. He's the one that I recognize as my progenitor. My kids every now and then give me a hard time and I make them call me a different name than Dad. I make them call me, should I tell them, my dear progenitor. That started very young when Valerie barely knew how to say the multi-syllabic words, my dear progenitor. If there was ever an issue of whether or not you're honoring me and your way you're talking to me, you're going to have to use that term. And that's here in this passage. That we understand He is the genesis of us. He is the beginning of us. He is that Alpha. He's the one to whom we understand that holds our being in place. That we have full dependence upon. That if it were not for Him, we would not be able to exist on any level. And certainly without this work of Jesus Christ, I would not be able to have this spiritual relationship at all. And so I look to Him and I understand that He is the progenitor of who I am spiritually and what I am. That I have all dependence upon Him. And if we want to put it in the terminology that we've just completed our study of, we have denied ourselves. When we come to God and say, You are my Father, it is the denial of ourselves. It is saying, I have not the strength. I have not the wisdom. I have not the power. I have not the authority. I am dependent upon you. You are the genesis of all that in my life. I bring to you nothing, and I ask everything. (laughs) This is what it means to have a personal relationship with God as Father. I am dependent upon you. You brought me life. I had nothing, no say in the matter. My kids had no say in the matter. Did you notice that? None of us had any of the say in the matter of our coming to life. Our parents did. 
And we come to God and say, I have no, there's nothing to my credit or to my, uh, glory in my new walk with you and my new life in Christ. It is all yours. You are my Father, our Father. There's not one raised above another. We have this mutual opportunity of access to a personal relationship with God in heaven. So, Christ's teaching begins that if you want to pray, I mean really pray, it begins with a personal relationship. When we understand that our Father, or understand God as our Father, and understand that He is always with us, we suddenly begin to realize how deplorable it is that we don't speak to Him. Tomorrow is a holiday. Actually, today is too, by the way. It's Sunday. This is a higher holiday than tomorrow, by the way. Every Sunday is a holiday. You get to come here and worship. I can't think of much better to do. Many of you are going to spend time with your family. You want to spend the whole day together as a family. What if at the end of the day tomorrow, not one of your children that you spent the whole day and took time off and planned a meal and a picnic and camping ever said a word to you? You spent the whole day with them, you're off work, you planned a big outing, you're out there, your kids never said anything to you. We would understand that that's dysfunctional. There's a modern word. That's not right. It's wrong. In fact, by the end of the day, if that was the case, I would imagine most of our fathers here would be pretty irate. Why don't our kids want to talk to me? Something is wrong. Now, I'm not talking about infants, and even they'll interact with you. They can't talk much, but they'll interact with you, and you know they're communicating. You just don't know what they're saying. They don't know what you're saying either, but you're communicating. And yet, we claim to have this intimate relationship with God called Father. We claim to believe that He is with us all the time. And yet we can go days without talking to him. Weeks? I don't know about you, but when I spend time with my family, if they go one hour and don't say one word to me, I'm kind of wondering what's going on. You see, we can claim intimacy. We can claim the title, yes, God is my father. But is it real? And prayer is the indication of the reality of your intimacy with God. When you communicate, you have a relationship. When there's no communication, guess what? You don't have a relationship. Is God still the one who gave you life? Yes. He gave you physical life. He gave you um, His image. He gave you the uh, 
the rain from heaven. He gave you the food you eat. He's provided this whole world to care for you. He's given you your family. He's given you your, the very breath you just took. He's given you all this, yes. But that doesn't mean you have an intimate relationship with Him. It means that He has that He knows you and is caring for you. That doesn't mean that He has a relationship, that you have a relationship with Him. When we come in and we say our Father, we are making claim to a relationship. We are making claim to a level of intimacy that demands that we engage Him on a regular basis. Now, do my children always have in-depth conversations with me at every passing moment? No. Sometimes it's just about what's going on in the day. And you know, God can be talked about those things. Did you know that? You can actually talk to Him about stuff going on during your day. It's okay. He has the time. He can give you the attention even to these small things throughout the day. And it is sure and is evident from Christ's life that that happened, that he was praising God. Everybody, oh, here's something happened. Oh, thank you, Lord, for what you've shown these people. Now, that's just kind of along the way praying. Because when you have an intimate relationship with someone and you know he's right there with you, you talk to him about things like that. Oh, thank you, Lord. Or, Lord, do you see this? <laughs> Lord, help. And certainly, on a familial level, that's a lot of our conversation. But it's dangerous if that's all the conversation we ever have, isn't it? Because the fact is, I expect to be able to sit down with my children and have substantial conversation on occasions, on regular occasions. Sometimes that's once a day. In our home, everyone sits down at the supper table. Everyone sits down at the supper table. Lunch, not so much, but in fact, less and less at lunch. I actually had lunch by myself the other day. It was sad. You have six kids and a wife, and you have lunch by yourself. It's just wrong. Okay? And I'm going to need more kids, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. <clears throat> I've been telling him that for, <laughs> and he's been listening. So We need to have a substantial conversation. And I expect my kids to tell me what's going on in their life and thoughts and activities and, and, and have conversation about sometimes some pretty significant and serious things on a regular basis. And I imagine my Heavenly Father expects exactly the same. That not only am I engaging Him throughout my day and recognizing that He is the giver, the, the genesis of every blessing in my life, that He is the, the provider and help at every problem I encounter, um, but that I also need to take time to sit down and in focused attention uh, engage Him in serious matters of substantive prayer. You see, it's not that one is better than the other, for one um, demonstrates that the other has to be there. If you do not have substantive prayer, this little flitty prayer is, is meaningless. But it, and if you have um, 
only substantive prayer and not these prayers throughout the day, um, I have to wonder, you know, is this just a religious activity? Do you sit down and do this by um, habit? Or is God truly our Father? That we have an intimate relationship with and that we are free to speak to and to engage Him, that we desire His wisdom, we desire His opinion, we desire His interaction. We're willing to share our lives with Him. That we are willing to learn from Him. That we're willing to be dependent upon Him, our Father. We then find out something about this father that should be maintained in this intimacy. They say that with familiarity comes contempt. And sometimes that's very true. And that's why I tell young parents and I tell older parents alike that um, you have an intimate relationship but you do not have a peer relationship with your children. They are not your friends. You are their parent, not their buddy. Why? Because there is a contemptuousness that comes with that level of familiarity. Intimacy does not equal familiarity. I have an intimate relationship with my children, but they know that I have authority over them. They know that I am not their buddy. I am one who loves them more than a buddy. That there is a difference between me and them and is a place of authority that they can share intimately with me with a realization that that doesn't mean that I'm going to say that everything they share is okay. That they're going to hear the truth. That this is wrong in your life and needs to be changed. That this is, that this is something that needs to be developed. That this is something you're missing. That there's, that, that, uh, there's understanding that, that from this individual um, I am dependent on. There's a dependency there. There's not a familiarity. And so it is with our Father. We are intimate, but not familiar. You see this familiarness, the idea that I introduced earlier of, of Big Daddy in the sky, that we could just uh, talk to him as if he's equal to us, is very foreign to Scripture. When all through Scripture we are to exalt his name, understand that he is far above us, that it is him that we glorify, it is him that we, that we understand has all power, all authority, that he is distinct from us. And so, in our praying, yes, we use this very intimate term, our Father. And we follow it immediately with an understanding that though we have this intimate relationship, it does not make us His peers. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It is this understanding that there's a certain tension here, just like with your earthly father, that you have to honor and obey but yet you still know intimately and knows you intimately. And so it is with God. 
Yes, we have an intimate relationship with Him or should have such that we can share with Him anything knowing that He will only give us what is good and Jesus Christ is going to exemplify that a little bit later on. We'll never get to it this month, but um, we'll get there, okay? But He's going to give us good things. He's not going to give us scorpions and snakes unless you want scorpions and snakes if you're a leechman boy. Um, uh, he's going to give you egg and bread and, and fruit. He's going to give you these good things in life. We know that about our Father. We know that about our Heavenly Father. But we also recognize that just as He is willing to care for us with good things, He is also the authority that disciplines us and shows us righteousness and holiness. And so we have that tension here in our relation with God. We have an intimate relationship, but not a familial one. Not, not familiar. Not that I can just... Use His first name. I can call Him Father. But I'm not calling Him Kirk. He'll smack me. And the Jews had an understanding of that end of it. The radical thing that Christ is introducing here is the intimacy. You see, the Jews had the understanding that God was above them. They got that part. But Christ is maintaining it. He says, don't lose track of this. Keep this. He is in heaven. He is to be hallowed. That is, He is to be exalted. He is to be understood as being holy, holy, holy. To be set apart from you. But there's an intimacy you can have. As Moses saw him face to face, as David could be called his friend. as Enoch could walk with him and was not because God took him. You see, those levels of intimacy were available even in the Old Testament. And yet, there was this sustained understanding that this is God and I should fear Him. And parents, your children should fear you with a reverent fear. Not because you're going to injure their bodies, but because you carry the authority of the home in you. And we ought to reverence our God. Oh, He wants that intimacy. He is always with us, knows our thoughts, heart, doings, knows that all we can share anything with Him. He is willing to give us everything good, everything that we need and more. He is willing to share His very life with us. He's willing to sacrifice to meet our needs. And He has. He has sacrificed His Son on Calvary's cross to meet your greatest need, which is salvation. He's done everything a good Father does. He is patient. He's given us an example. On and on it goes. And that does not require us to treat Him familiarly. We... Familiarly, it requires us to treat him reverently. A father who has done his job will be revered by his children. You will not ever be their buddy. You will always be their dad, no matter how old they get. You can be 80 years old, have a 60-year-old son, and he will still reverence you. And so we are called upon to have an intimate relationship with God, but still to maintain a reverent fear of God in the midst of that intimacy. 
This is what is required for a powerful prayer life at the onset. If you do not have these two in tandem in your life, your prayers will be ineffectual. If you try to go to Him and do it in some repetitious cultic manner of praying, there is no power. You're called upon to go to Him based upon an intimate relationship that maintains a reverent awe of who you're talking to. This is not a small part of this prayer. This is the beginning of the prayer because this is the beginning of what it means to have this kind of access. Prayer ultimately is just access. How do you have access to God? Through Jesus Christ. By placing our trust in Him. By denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following Him. That we communicate our dependence upon Him for the forgiveness of our sins. That we surrender ourselves to His one way, one truth, one life, Jesus Christ. And that we reverently speak His name. recognizing that He didn't have to do any of this for us, but He chose to out of His great love for us. And so I come to Him in my prayers with this dual background that when I come to Him and I use that word Father, I will speak it with the reverence it deserves, but I will speak it understanding the intimacy implies. And those are not mutually exclusive they are mutually dependent. You see, we have our society telling us that, well, if you want to have this intimacy with your children, you've got to go down on their level. Nonsense. It's a lie. And that if you want to have this reverence of your children, you have to you know, be this stoic person way above them. Nonsense. That's a lie. You see, intimacy and reverence are not mutually exclusive. They're mutually dependent. And so when we come to God, we must have an intimate relationship and simultaneously have a reverent one. And if these aren't the foundation, the beginning points of your praying, then your praying is empty. Powerless. In vain, worthless. Christ comes to his disciples with his very powerful declaration. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It begins with God. It doesn't begin with me. It begins with him. It begins by understanding that I'm in a dependent relationship upon you, the great God of the heavens. And I'm going to commence into my praying here, but I want to begin by by demonstrating an understanding of my relationship with you and that this is the foundation of all that will be said, all that will be engaged in from here forward is this intimate, reverent relationship. 
I have just enough time to deal with the first request. No, I don't, but I'm going to try. Having built upon this personal, intimate, reverent, honoring relationship, you're taking the liberties that you have, that it gives you. It gives you the liberty to come. My, your, my children, your children, hopefully have the liberty to come, and they know that. They can come. Say, Dad. Isn't it interesting how they come in the room? Dad. And they wait for me to answer. It's kind of interesting. Yes. And then they go on. Walk into the room. Dad. But if it's really serious, Dad, can I ask you something? At that point, I said, okay, yeah, what's it up? You see, when they come in the room, they're recognizing not only my existence, but my authority. But I'm the one that they need to go to to communicate either this information or this request. And so we've come to our Father in heaven. We recognize who He is. We have, we have demonstrated our, our submission to that authority and our recognition of the reverence that it requires. And we come with our first request, and this is the basis of all further requests. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are coming to God, not saying, God, I have a list of things I want you to give me. I have a list of things I want you to do for me. But God, the first thing I want is for whatever way things are in heaven to be that way in my life. That just as how things occur in heaven in accordance with exactly how you want them to transpire, I want that in me. What does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus? Lord, whatever it is, however things are done in heaven there, oh, they would be done on earth here. May your kingdom come here. This isn't just a prayer about the future. Lord, may your kingdom come on earth um, sometime in the future, the millennial kingdom. Um, that is not the, the focal point of this, although it certainly probably came to the mind of the disciples very quickly, your kingdom come. Yeah, we want the kingdom. You know, we're going to have Jesus throw these Romans in the sea. I'm sure that crossed their mind. They weren't filled with the Spirit yet. They weren't, were, were, they don't even, I mean, Christ even tells them he's going to be crucified. They don't get that. Um, and so they're certainly not going to understand this. But the concept here is that, Father, I want what you want in my life first and foremost. I am submitting my will to yours here and now. Oh, that our prayers would begin that way. If you think Christ is being hypocritical here that he didn't do this, you haven't read the Garden of Gethsemane account, have you? What was his prayer in the garden? Lord, not my will, but yours be done. What did he just pray there? He prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, he didn't use those exact words. No, because this isn't (laughs) magic formula words. This is a pattern for us to follow. And so we recognize God as our Father, intimacy. We recognize that He is to be hallowed, reverence. We come to Him and we say, okay, if you're the Father and you're the one who I'm reverence, then first and foremost here, I want to do what you want me to. I want your kingdom to be real in my life. 
I want your will to be done here. As if I was already in heaven doing your will there. You see, God's will is being done in heaven. God's will is not being done on earth. We've taught, I've taught this before extensively, and I hear Christians walking around saying this pathetic thing, well, God must want this. It happened, so God must have wanted it. Wrong. Sin happened. Did God want sin to happen in the Garden of Eden? No. God's will is not being done on earth today. Get it through your heads. We go out there and people are being killed by drunk drivers. God wants that to happen? No. Well, this is just God's providence. No, God's providence overcomes the evil that is against His will. That's His providential work. You'll learn about Well, we did learn about that last Sunday night, didn't we? We'll learn a little bit more. We'll review that tonight, I think, in Sunday night service. We don't put all that to God's charge because if, if God's will were already being done on earth, why does Jesus instruct us to pray this kind of a prayer? If God's will was being done in your life right now, why are you praying this kind of prayer? The fact is, He has given us the privilege of exercising our will even in opposition to His own. It is incumbent, it is necessary for us to surrender our will to His and this is the prayer that does that. This is the kind of praying that needs to be there. Lord, we have a lot of things going on in our life, but what we want most of all is for You to have the preeminence, You to have the control, You to have the authority, Your will, what You want to be done in my life. Lord, what do You want? Trust me. We don't need to rehearse what You want. We all know what You want. You all want to be fat and happy. And it doesn't matter what that applies to, whether it's your bank account, your body, whatever. It doesn't matter. Everything in between. I want a fat and happy family. I want a fat and happy life. I want a fat and happy job. I want a fat and happy entertainment. I want a fat and happy bank account. I just want to be fat and happy, God. We already know that. There's nothing new there. Here's something radical. I want what you want, God. And to a degree, this is almost a confessional prayer. Because the reality is we're admitting that, Lord, your will isn't being done in my life. I want it to be done. Lord, may your will occur here on earth like it is in heaven. There is no arguing in heaven. What God says, boom, it does. There's no arguing. There's no disagreement. There is no contention. God spoke. Things came into existence. God sends. Angels go. Boom. He declares it. It happens. Oh, what a prayer. God, may that happen here like it does up there. When God says it, I'm there. God says, go, I'm on my way. Say, where? God says, give it, and okay, how much? Well, I'm doling it out. God says, make it, do it, be it. And I'm on my way, ready to obey. Oh, what a powerful prayer. Lord, not my will, but thine be done in my life. 
This is the kind of praying Jesus prayed and taught us to pray. Not a magic formula. (laughs) Intimate relationship of reverence with God. When that's the case, number three is going to happen. Number three, God, the one who is my progenitor of all good things in my life, who has all power, who is God, what do you want? How often have you come to God and asked Him what He wanted instead of just rehearse what you wanted? See, the reality is we know that God has already communicated to us what He wants. The larger picture. He's communicating His Word and we haven't listened. As parents, we invest our instruction through our example, through our teaching, through our values to our children. We teach them from God's Word, from our own experience. We try to communicate those. We try to instill them in our children And then they become 18 and magical things happen. They become omniscient themselves and self-determining. And we go, did they forget everything we taught them? Yes, they did. Because, you know, there's only, only room in a human brain for so much information. And so since they've decided to take on their own information, they've thrown out yours. They'll rediscover it later. Okay, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, but something happens there in the late teen years that they still start to, maybe early teen years for some of your kids. But um, God tries to instill his word in us and instill it and instill it and instill it. And we come to a statement like this, well, what do you want out of me? You don't know? Don't you love it when your teenagers come to you and say, well, what do you expect from me? You've lived in this family all your life. You don't know what we want from you. Sometimes I wonder if God answers our prayers that way. Are you stupid? You don't know what I want? I wrote it down. Go read it. He said, I don't know what God wants from me. Yeah, my teenagers do that too. What do you want from me? I want you to love God. I want you to serve Him all your days. I want you to do what's right. And believe it or not, parents want their kids to be happy. And we know that sin brings misery. And we don't want it in your life. Because we don't want the misery there. Guess what? Your heavenly Father feels the same way. And He knows what will bring you joy. He knows what will bring you fulfillment. He loves you more than anyone. He will sacrifice anything and has sacrificed everything for you. And why aren't we coming with an understanding of that kind of love commitment on God's part and coming and realizing, God, you want what's best for me. Oh, would what you want for me be done in me? I surrender. You want a good life? Surrender. 
surrender to the people that care about you the most. They're not going to lead you very far off the right path. You see, it is not that we don't know that they are our progenitor, that, there are, that, there are our, that we have that intimacy availability. It's not that we don't understand that we're supposed to respect them. Um, it's the idea that we want to do what we want. Fundamentally, it's rebellion. And it's rebellion that keeps our praying powerless. Because fundamentally, we don't want to go to God and say, God, I want to do what you want me to do. Rather, we want to go to God and say, here's what I want, God. Can you just sign off on my want list? Because of this father relationship that we are talking about in terms of the basis, foundation of our praying, we understand within our very families what it's like. For our children to be in rebellion and come up and want us to give them everything. They scratch their heads and while we don't, well, won't you give me the keys to the car? Because you don't drive the way I taught you. You're reckless because you're irresponsible. And I've been trying to raise a responsible person all these years. Why don't I get to do this? Why don't you get... Because you've been disobedient. You've been rebellious. We go to God and say, how come? And he looks at us and says, what do you expect? My will isn't being done in your life. Why should my resources be at your disposal? There's a little parenting tip. When your children are in rebellion, your resources are not at their disposal any longer. Period. Yeah, that's tough words, aren't they? And if you don't think I if you don't think I live those, you talk to my kids. They'll tell you. The Bible says that God turns his face away from his own people who are in rebellion. That Figure of speech, turn your face away from, means I'm not giving them, I'm not meeting any of their needs. They have, none of my resources are available to them. Not even my gaze is available for them. I won't even look at them. Not talking to them. This is what God does to those in rebellion. And so, we have an intimate relationship with God. We have a reverent relationship with God. And we have a submissive relationship with God. This is the trifold foundation of your good praying. Intimate, reverent. And the other word just escaped my mind. Help me. Submissive. Intimate, reverent, submissive relationship. Lord, I have this relationship with you. I have this access because you're my dad. You're my father. You're the dear one in my life. You're the one, the source of all things. You're the, you're the provider, the, the director, the instructor, the discipliner. You're all these things. You're my very life. And you are God himself to be revered, honored, hallowed. And Lord, I need to surrender myself, submit myself to your will. Our praying needs to begin there. Not just with those words, but with those attitudes, with those hearts. 
So if you're here today and you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ, then I invite you to correct that today, and you can, by receiving Him as your Savior and Lord. By humbling yourself before Him and acknowledging your sin that has broken that relationship and, and severed it entirely. And place your trust in Jesus Christ, His sacrifice, that the God of all creation can be your Heavenly Father. Perhaps you're here as a believer who hasn't surrendered. And I want to challenge you that if you have already received Jesus Christ as your Savior and that God is your Father, that it's time that you reverence Him enough to recognize that His will in your life is what's best. And to surrender your will is what it means to call Him Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven because saying it isn't enough. Surrendering to it is what is required. So this morning I invite you to begin a walk with God. It will be demonstrated by an active, vital, effectual prayer life, but it must be predicated, must be started, began with a right relationship with God. Characterized by intimacy, reverence, and submission. We're going to go to prayer now and close our service in that fashion. Dear Father, we are in wonder this morning of your work in our midst, that you've given us your word, that you have committed yourself to it, that you will be faithful to do what you say, to be who you say you are, that with you there will be no change, no fluctuation, no vacillation. Lord, we also recognize that that requires us to surrender ourselves to your standard. But that standard will not change either. There will be no exceptions. And Lord, we pray that we might submit ourselves and understand the necessity of accepting your Son, Jesus Christ. To receive from Him the righteousness that we could not attain ourselves. That we might truly be your children, walking in your ways. Lord, it is certain And we have spent far too much of this past week walking in our own ways. Doing things as we please. Never considering whether it pleases you. Lord, forgive us of this. For this is rebellion. And Lord, we do commit ourselves to you. For the balance of this day and the week before us that we are enjoying the beginning of here in this assembly. We do not know what lays before us, but you do. You have perfect knowledge of it. Of all the potentialities that are there, of all the circumstances that we created, Lord, you are well aware. So, Lord, we lay it before you and we pray that 
we might be found walking your ways in our decision-making throughout this week, in our activities, in our speech, in our conduct, in our attitudes. Lord, we pray that we might be obedient to your word of truth. And Lord, where we are ignorant of your word by choosing not to read it, may your grace overwhelm us. That you might guard us from sin even then. And that we might recommit ourselves to knowing your word better knowing that you love us as no man can and desire nothing but good for us far beyond even what we desire for ourselves. Lord, we want to surrender ourselves to your wisdom. Lord, we also know that you require righteousness from your people. And so we do pray you might guard us in the days, hours to come, knowing that this world will confront us with its own philosophies, with its own error, with its own evil, and invite us to participate with it, to think with it, to act with it, to react with it, to let its ideas become our ideas. Lord, we pray you might guard us from such things whether they come through the media or from friends or from our work environments, Lord, we pray that we might be salt and light there in those dark, tasteless places. That we might have the boldness to stand against all this that surrounds us. And Lord, we know that sin doesn't just come from outside Temptation doesn't just come from around us. But Lord, we also acknowledge before you that it comes from within us. And Lord, we pray you might purify our hearts, purify our minds. That we might meditate on your ways all our days, all our hours, all our moments. We might seek out your will in our lives. And Lord, we pray not only for our circumstances and our uh, lives. And, but Lord, we pray for others that we love dearly, whether it be within our family, others that we have contact with, friends, co-workers, even those that we don't love so dearly that we should, that you do, who do not know you as Savior and Lord. We pray it might be a witness to them. Whether they be at the skate park or they be in uh, uh, our very homes and every place in between. May we intentionally seek opportunity to share Christ. Lord, we pray also for those that minister in other places your gospel, that they similarly might have that dependence upon your power to do their work, whether it be in India we thank you for the pastors there and the children there that we were able to support. And we pray you might work in their lives. We pray also for Pastor Reddy. He might guide in his life. He might serve you faithfully. And as he preaches your word in churches here across the country, that you might move in their midst. And he might prepare us and the churches here in Albuquerque that will also be having him speak, that we might move in our midst 
they might be receptive to his message. Might let us move us to action. Lord, we also thank you for the good report from the lossings and the opportunity to be sent back home. And Lord, you continue to provide there and direct and, and you've been helping them to overcome the obstacles that have been thrown before them. And Lord, we pray that you might give them the victory there. They might have their heart's desire to serve you faithfully. And Lord, should that be in Peru, we thank you for directing them there and for providing the means for them to get there. We pray you might work out the logistics of getting them there. Lord, we also thank you for Brother Hindle's desire to serve your church through gospel literature services and that powerful ministry of getting those tools into the hands of nationals and enabling them to minister more effectively in in their communities. Lord, we do pray for the Haiti Project. Lord, we do not do this to our glory. We do this to your glory. We pray that it might be a means of multiplying the ministry there in, in Evangelical Baptist Church in Lillevois. And we pray my work in Pastor Lapointe that you might encourage him this day to serve you faithfully. That he might be your instrument in that community that we might be a means for you to bless his life and his church and each one in it. Lord, we know there are many others, but we also know that there are many others of your people who could help. And Lord, we pray that you might get their eyes off of their own selfish needs to see the dire needs that are in other places. Lord, similarly, that we might be a people known by our love for others. That we might be ready and willing to sacrifice of ourselves that others might hear the gospel more often and better and perhaps the only time they ever will. And Lord, Help us to have your attitude towards those sacrifices, not to count them, not to even to consider them weighty, but to consider it joy, to present them before you as a matter of praise and of worship. Lord, we thank you so much for this place that you've provided for us to meet, the comforts that it affords us and the facility that allows us Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the uh, building that's being built and the road work that has been promised to be done. And we wait patiently upon your provision, direction in that and for your completion of it. And Lord, we want to be faithful as we wait. Lord, we do thank you for our families. We've used that home relationship extensively today. Not only mine, but each of our homes. And I realize that none of us can be the father that you are. And yet I pray that each of our men here may fulfill that role that you have for them, both in their marriages and their homes, 
in their community that you would have them in this church that you have for them. They might do it faithfully. They might do it righteously. They might do it by the direction of your spirit. And Lord, that our wives might also submit themselves to you, even as the church is called upon to surrender themselves to Christ, that they might surrender themselves to their husbands. That our children might honor and obey their parents, even as we are to honor and obey you. Knowing that they're in their days will be long. Lord, guard our homes from the air of the world. Guard our homes from the selfishness that is within us. For both will bring chaos where you intended peace and order. Lord, we do pray particularly for those physical needs that are represented here. For they are of concern to you. Whether they be within our physical bodies, we pray you might work in them strengthen and to heal where that is your purpose and to your glory. And Lord, we pray also for those gals that are with children. We pray you might strengthen them and those little ones that they carry, that you might guard them and protect them and develop them. Lord, we also pray for other needs that we have. You know them more intimately than we do. But we lift them up before you, for you have instructed us to do so, and you've told us that our praying will influence you. So Lord, our prayer is that you might strengthen the relationships within our church, our families, that they might reflect your truth. And Lord, that we might bear one another's burdens, as you have instructed us to encouraging one another to faithfully serve you all our days. Lord God, we now just commit the balance of this day to you and pray that our worship might not end with the end of this service, but only begin anew. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.